grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike, one of the pastors on the team. And you can grab your notes out of your handout, if you will. You'll see we're talking about a glimpse of heaven. And Cheryl just mentioned that a few moments ago. We just heard heaven isn't too far away uh, from, of course, the 80s, the best decade ever uh, for all kinds. Well, basically for everything. And... Uh, and yeah, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about a glimpse of heaven, and we're going to be talking about it for the next three weeks. So I really want to encourage you to come all three weeks that uh, you recognize that this is just, it's basically one message uh, split over three Sundays. And so you, you have to come to all three weeks or else you'll get a lopsided view of heaven. And uh, I would want that for any of us. So um, as we talk about this concept of heaven, the truth is that we live in a season where speaking of the afterlife is somewhat out of fashion. And I get it. I get it because, you know, none of us have been there and occasionally we'll, we'll find somebody who flatlines for a while and then they come back and they'll bring tales from beyond either of fear and trembling or of joy and victory. But, but it, it is an interesting season that we live in. And Jesus teaches his people to pray, uh, Father, who art in heaven, uh, thy kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we are instructed to pray that way, then it is important for us to know, well, what is it that we are wanting here on earth? We need to know a little bit about heaven so that we can pray for and work toward uh, God's reign and his rule here on earth as it is in heaven. And the Bible is clear that we are all going to live forever, that, 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 that you and I are eternal beings. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is to immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Wow, what a great reminder that you are immortal, that you are everlasting. Everyone who has ever lived will live forever in one of two states, either with God and that's what we'll be talking about for the next few weeks. Or separated from God and from all the good things that emanate from God's being. In a place that the, Greek, uh, the Greeks call Hades, uh, Hebrews call Sheol, uh, you and I could just call it bad news. And it is a place, um, this separation from God's goodness. The Bible uses imagery to convey this horrific separation. And the imagery is very unpleasant. It's sulfur and it's fire. Uh, it's a place described as that place where the worm never dies. A place that is described as being designed for Satan and his uh, angels. Uh, it's a place where the book of Revelation calls the second death. And so that's why I start with this. This is the bad news that we start with. Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. The only positive thing I can say about hell is this. I am positive that you don't have to go there. 
Nobody does. In fact, Jesus Christ went through hell so that you and I never would have to. Uh, And I just want you to know that this is not a series on hell. This is a series on heaven, and it's needed because in our world, discussions of heaven seem to be much neglected. In fact, John Calvin never wrote on the eternal state at length, and everything Calvin wrote was at length. (laughs) Niebuhr wrote an in-depth two-volume set called The Nature and Destiny of Man, and yet remarkably wrote nothing about heaven. Burkhoff's classic systematic theology devotes 38 pages to creation, 40 pages to baptism and communion, and yet Burkhoff writes only one page on the eternal state. And the question is, if heaven is our final destination, shouldn't we spend a healthy portion of our time studying scriptures so that we can be enlightened about what God has planned for his people? You know, if you put it in the practical sense, if you were going to be transferred to a new city for promotion, wouldn't you spend some time researching that city and asking yourself, where are the schools? What sorts of neighborhoods are there to raise my kids? What's the culture like? It wouldn't be natural for you to look ahead. Wouldn't you make choices on where it is that you're moving to? Of course you would. Or if you knew you were going to inherit a billion dollars, would it change the stress that you feel in your current financial struggles? Would it add peace to the current challenges that you face? Of course it would. And yet we are being transferred to an incredible new city with an inheritance worth more than a billion dollars, and yet it rarely impacts our life today. You know, one question is, why do we not spend more of our time thinking about and looking forward to heaven? And I, I think it's a trick. I think it's a ploy by the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls to steal both joy and motivation. Because when we have a clear view of the incredible glory, the holistic beauty that God has planned for us to enjoy in his manifest presence, it will fill us and it will fuel us for the mission that God gives us. And certainly that's true in the Apostle Paul's life. Look what he writes in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. Look at this. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Wow. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. See, he lived with a vibrant awareness of where he was headed in heaven. He longed for that time with Christ, and yet he knew God had created him for a purpose, and so he allowed heaven and the realities of heaven and his longing to be with the Lord to inspire his fruitfulness in his present life and mission. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that those most focused on heaven are the most effective in this lifetime. And in fact, the Bible tells us that we are to set our sights on heaven. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 3. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. 
For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Wow. So you see, we are told that we're to set our sights on the realities of heaven. In fact, you might want to circle that phrase in your notes, the realities of heaven. That's what we're talking about. And there are a lot of misconceptions about heaven. Lots of of pictures, boring pictures of like chubby little kids with wings smoking cigarettes. Maybe that's a Van Halen album cover, but... the, 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 this idea of, you know, living uh, isolated on a cloud with a harp. Uh, many of you have seen this uh, far side cartoon, right, as people enter into heaven. I think it says, uh, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion, <laughs> you know. And, and so we've got all these misconceptions, and, and, and we don't have a real clear picture and what I want to do is I want to show you a video clip. It's from a movie called The Invention of Lying. And Ricky Gervais is the actor in this. And I just want to show you this clip. I actually don't recommend the movie. I didn't enjoy it very much. But the clip is really interesting. And so I want you to watch this, and we'll continue the conversation. I'm so scared, Mark. People don't talk about it, but... Death is an horrible thing. One minute you're alive, and then just like that, it's all gone. This is it, Mark. A few more hours like this, and then... an eternity of nothingness. Nurse! Her vitals are dropping. favorite place in the whole world and everyone you've ever loved and who's ever loved you will be there and you'll be young again you can run and jump like you used to and dance you used to dance there's no pain Die. Tell us more, please. 
So did you notice how interested everybody was? And, and, and that's the real paradox. Regardless of sort of what your thoughts are about how America is trending in terms of its religious sentiments, sensibilities, sorry, let's skip that word. <laughs> Regardless of what your thoughts are, depending on what poll that you read, between 85 and 95% of Americans believe in heaven. They believe in an afterlife. And yet, there's not a whole lot of clarity about what that is like. And so it's cobbled together with just a lot of thoughts, a lot of thoughts about our own desires, a lot of thoughts about what uh, culture or popular movies might teach. And what's interesting in this little clip is that there isn't a mention of God, notably absent. And so I do want to say real clearly on the outset of this that, that if you're, if you're going to think about heaven, you're going to talk about heaven, you need to bring into the conversation the reality that God is present there. This is God's kingdom. That he's going to be on the throne. This is God's house. And so you're going to bump into him in the hallway. Uh, and it'll be embarrassing if you don't believe in him, right, at that point. Obviously, it's a joke. Uh, but my, my point is that, that you cannot come up with a construct of heaven absent or devoid of God. And that's why, friends, we are actually told in the scriptures to practice loving God now because we're going to be able to spend an eternity in his presence. In the same way that you can't create any picture, you can't have any conversation about heaven without bringing God into the equation, the same way you cannot picture heaven without picturing it relationally without picturing it in relationship with one another. And that's why it resonates so deeply within us when we talk about a place of love. Love is a relational word. And that's why we're commanded to love one another now. We're to practice loving each other now because in heaven, we're gonna be able to do that perfectly forever and ever. And this brings me to the central point that we're gonna discuss this morning. And that is this, that a glimpse of heaven here on earth, a glimpse of heaven today is one in which we see heaven in loving community. We see heaven in the midst of, of selfless and wholehearted relationships of love for one another. That's where we see a glimpse of heaven clearly today. And I'll read you this scripture. This is from the Apostle John. He writes in 1 John 4.12. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. In other words, we can't see God, but in some incredible way, when we love one another in this selfless and wholehearted fashion, then, then God is experienced. He's witnessed. Heaven is the reign and rule of God Almighty. And when we love one another in this fashion, in the way that he loves us unconditionally and, and everlastingly, unfailingly, if we can love one another in that way, then his reign and rule is made evident. His, it's expressed in that context. So let's explore this concept a little bit more about loving community, about heaven experienced in this loving community. And in, in, in heaven, if you're filling in the blanks, we will experience untainted friendship, untainted, undiluted, unmarred fellowship with one another, joyful intimacy, 
There'll be no betrayals, no drifting apart, nothing hidden because we have nothing to hide. Even if you don't see someone for 10,000 years, you'll meet again as dear friends celebrating holy camaraderie. And in fact, it is noteworthy to ask, will there even be strangers in heaven or will we already know and love all of us that, that are present in the presence of the Lord? I want to read you a really fascinating passage from the life of Jesus. This is in Matthew 17, and Jesus is with a few of his disciples, and it says this, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what was happening is Peter was there. He saw Jesus transformed, transfigured, some of your translations say. And then immediately there was Moses and there was Elijah present. And, and Peter he had this, all, this knowledge of who they were, and he loved them instantly, and his love was so intense that he was tempted to worship them. That's why he talks about building these memorials or these altars, because he's tempted to worship them. Now, as you read through the passage, here's what you don't see. You don't see that Moses and Elijah appeared and then introduced themselves to the disciples by name. You don't see that Moses and Elijah appeared and the disciples recognized them because of their likeness to the portraits hanging in the Jerusalem Museum. Uh, it, it doesn't say that, that Moses and Elijah appeared and the disciples knew them because they were wearing name tags that said, hello, my name is Old Testament prophet. Like, uh, they just knew them and they knew them instantly and, and they loved them so completely that they were tempted to worship them. And it does bring up the question, well, in heaven, when we're present with one another, when we're present with the manifest presence of the Lord, uh, will we ever meet a stranger or will everyone we meet be a dear friend already? You see, friendship and community, connection with one another, gives us a beautiful picture of heaven on earth. And of course, one of the things that tear friendships apart, and I mean this literally, is the ending of a friendship through death, the ending of a relationship through dying. And so God takes care of that. In Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4, we read, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And if you're filling in the blanks, you need to know death is gone. It's removed forever and ever. Death, which always comes as such an assault on our soul. Having someone you love, someone you shared so much life with, yanked from your life. It's a violent and disorienting experience. Death is actually an abnormal condition because it tears apart what God has designed to be joined together. Death is so hostile, we will always experience it as trauma. I believe this is why we see a picture of Jesus at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. And Jesus weeps in that moment. 
And in his weeping and in his connection with the abnormality and the brutality of death, what he does is he gives us permission to weep as well, to grieve with one another as well. And so we're actually told in Scripture to grieve with those who grieve, to mourn with those who mourn. And so we're set free because of the tears of Jesus to do just that. And so we can come alongside and we grieve a life that is taken after a full and long life. And, and maybe it's old age that, that ends that friendship. We can still grieve. And we can grieve when, when that relationship is broken by death through cancer or some other untimely illness or disease. We can grieve with those who grieve. We grieve with those who grieve when death comes through a bullet in the street and a man lay dying, and, and, and we can grieve with those who grieve. We have permission. We can grieve with, with those who are lost, and those lives are young, whether it's through an accident or someone taking their own life. But we grieve with those who grieve because death is always brutal, and it's always an abnormality, and it's always a reminder that things are not now as they will be. There's an incredible book called Lament for a Son by, uh, by a man named Walter Starf, and this is what he writes. He, he lost his son in a mountain climbing accident, and this is what he writes. He says, there is a hole in the world now, a center like no other of memory and hope and knowledge and affection, which once inhabited this earth is gone. A perspective unique in this world is gone. The world is emptier. And you see, it's a reminder that God has not created that to be the final reality. That God intends for our bodies to last as long as our souls. And it boggles our finite minds to understand and imagine no death. Because right now, death saturates our thinking. And so much of what we do is in denial of death. And of course, death presents itself as the final reality. But that is why in loving one another, we get a glimpse of heaven today because death doesn't win. No, death itself has an end. It will be destroyed, but our relationships will carry into eternity. And not only is death destroyed, but the next feeling, sorrow is gone as well. All, all of our sorrow. And I want you to think about all of the relational pain that we've experienced in life all of the relational pain that maybe we've caused in life, all of that sorrow in our relationships gone. Think about every dysfunction, every addiction, every selfishness, every insecurity or anxiety that has produced fear or sorrow that has caused us to isolate in our relationships. All of that sorrow is gone. I dare you to experience or, or, or imagine what it will be like when all depression is gone. Have you ever, if you've ever struggled with depression or had a loved one struggle, I've had friends and family members struggle. If you've ever had a, a friend or a family member or, or you have struggled with mental illness and the sorrow and, and the anxiety, the fear that comes from that struggle, just thinking about how wonderful this glorious reality will be, right? knowing that our gracious and loving Heavenly Father will wipe every tear from our eyes. And the profound impact that's going to have on our relationships, on our friendships, 
See, some of us already have good relationships now with our friends, or some of us have a real vibrant relationship right now with our spouse, and, and so we know what that's like, even in a world that has fallen, and in a world where we have selfishness still and shallowness. So can you imagine how good it's going to be when all of that sorrow is removed forever? How freely and how vastly and how wholeheartedly we will be able to love one another See, heaven is going to be so much more amazing than we typically think about, if we think about it at all. And the reason why we don't think about it is because some of us really have bought into that convoluted thinking that heaven will be like a disembodied consciousness, and that we'll be floating through some cosmic steam room, not really recognizing one another, maybe occasionally floating over to join a choir, and it doesn't sound that exciting to us, and so it doesn't motivate us or fuel us or fill us. And Randy Alcorn writes this in his book entitled Heaven. He says, we do not desire to eat gravel. Why? Because God did not design us to eat gravel. Trying to develop an appetite for a disembodied existence in a non-physical heaven is like trying to develop an appetite for gravel. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how hard we try, it's not going to work, nor should it. What God made us to desire, and therefore what we do desire, if we actually admit it, is exactly what he promises to those who follow Jesus Christ. A resurrected life in a resurrected body with a resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. Our desires correspond precisely to God's plans. You see, many of us have thoughts about heaven that aren't that compelling because they actually feel a little lonely. The idea of being stuck up on a cloud with a harp and... And that's not the picture that God paints for us. No, it's much more like being surrounded by all of your best friends, having an incredible time, watching the Seattle Seahawks win the Super Bowl, all the excitement that goes into that. It's, it's, it's much more dynamic and vibrant, and, and it involves all of our heart and soul. And, and we typically don't think about that. It's very relational, the picture that we get in Scripture. And in fact, it's so relational, that's why one of the massive images we get of heaven involves the new Jerusalem, the new joyful Jerusalem. It's a relational image we get in Scripture. Revelation 21.2 says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Isaiah 60, 15 says, Though you were once despised and hated with no one traveling through you, I will make you beautiful forever, a joy to all generations. So you can see, once hated, once lonely, one, once isolated, now beautiful and joyful forever, as radiant as a bride preparing for her wedding day. These are relationally rich images. And I want you to just think about, those of you who have read from cover to cover here, you know the beginning and the end of the story. I want you to think about how amazing it is that God starts the story in a garden, but he, he has his conclusion in a city. And it's a beautiful and vibrant and joyful city where he himself dwells, vibrant with life and love, humming with activity and song and glory. And I want you to think about in this new reality, in this ultimate eternal state, I want you to think about how the Bible assures us that everything is redeemed, everything is restored. In fact, if you would write this word down in your notes, just write down the word upgrade. Everything is upgraded. 
Okay, the Bible is very, very clear about this. God says in Isaiah 60, he replaces the bronze with gold, the iron with silver. That's an upgrade. In Revelation 21, we see that the city alone, the city of Jerusalem, will be 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles wide. That's big. That's like the continental United States big. Now, that's not the whole of heaven. That's just the city of Jerusalem. That's not the nations. That's just the city. That's, that's an upgrade, friends. And the city wall is made of jasper, and the city construction is made of gold. That's an upgrade. And there's peace in the city of Jerusalem, peace which it has never experienced outside of a brief golden period when David was the king 3,000 years ago. That is an upgrade. And it's really important for us to recognize that the Bible is systematically clear. Heaven is not someplace else. It's not out in space. It's not in some other dimension. It's actually here. That the new Jerusalem comes down to a refined and resurrected and glorified earth. The new heavens and the new earth are completely redeemed and completely restored and upgraded. And this is heaven and earth filled with beauty and completely absence of litter and plague and violence and warfare. Isaiah 60 says, I will make peace your leader and righteousness your ruler. Violence will disappear from your land. The desolation and destruction of war will end. And so we'll be together, not isolated, but together in this beautiful city that is completely diverse. It's a united kingdom glorifying the Lord with members from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This is in Revelation 5, 9, Revelation 7, 9. Friends, this is why the church today that follows Jesus seeks to model that kind of beautiful diversity because we know in eternity that's the picture that God paints. And so we celebrate that diversity now. And the last relational glimpse we get, it has to do with how we remember now, how we remember things, our memory, loosely and vaguely and dimly now. But, but occasionally, we get a glimpse of, of a blessed memory, a golden memory. And so you need to know that in heaven, in our relationships, we will have an untainted memory. Untainted memory. I want you to kind of let your biblical imagination go on this. I want you to imagine living in a state where you never need to take a selfie. Some of you can't do it. And the reason why we take selfies and the reason why we snap photos, the reason why we take videos all the time is because we don't have great memory. Because we can't remember, you know, remember exactly how things go, how conversations go. We, we want to we sort of solidify these memories in our consciousness. And so we snap photos. And, and nothing wrong with that. And in fact, some of you right now, you're thinking, oh, I don't want an untainted memory. Because right now, it's, it's my loose and my lack of memory that lets me get through my life because of maybe traumatic experiences that have happened, difficult seasons, things that you would rather uh, just forget. But the reason why you're thinking like that, the reason why I think like that is because we're still thinking from an earthly perspective. And see, in heaven, all of that will be healed. And it will, be, it will be made right. All the wrongs will be made right. All the harms will be forgiven. That, that there is a balm that covers all of our woundedness. And that God will heal us. And in heaven, the memories we make, they will be untainted. 
untainted and, and untouched by sin and by the curse. And, and so just think about how beautiful that will be. Now, as I was trying to get this concept in my own mind, I, I was just thinking about the season that we're in as a family. And I've shared some of this with you before over Lake. My, my, my daughter is 16 years old. She's a junior in high school. She's uh, driving now. We're having the college conversations. And, and it's just a great season that we're in right now. Um, I'm really, really so proud of uh, who God has created her to be. I just, I, I, I just, I love, you know, I'm, I'm wrapped around her little finger. I like it. That's, that's the reality. And, and yet, it's interesting as I think about where she is in her growth and her maturity. Just yesterday, she was this tiny, precious thing. As I was writing this paragraph on my computer, I glanced up at my windowsill, and I've got a black and white picture of my daughter when she's two years old and three months and she meets her baby brother Caleb for the very first time. And she's just delighted to meet him. And she's just so adorable and pleased. And, and she was thrilled to meet this raisin-headed, squishy little baby brother. And, and, and I, you know, I see the picture, but I can't really remember that experience. And and I know that there have been so many moments of laughter and teasing and tuck-ins and story times, so many piggyback rides, and, and I know they happen, but I, just, I can't remember all of them. And I don't want anything to go, you know? I want to remember all of it because, friends, you know as well as I do that tomorrow she's graduating, and the day after that she's going to college, and the day after that she's going to get married, and the day after that there are grandkids, and the day after that... I don't know, you know, where did it all go? That's why I'm taking selfies all the time. <laughs> but I just want you to see that in heaven, it will be untainted memory. And you'll be able to recall that, that joyous exchange with your friends and your dearly loved ones and all of that laughter and all of that memory making. And you'll be able to remember it as clear as your living consciousness because it'll be untainted and untouched by sin. And I just, I want you to see how good it is as you, you remember this loving relationship that you have with all of your friends, the, the worship of the God who's manifestly present, where you're dwelling in community with those that you love, without any fear of death, with no taint of sorrow whatsoever. Can you see how good heaven is going to be for those who follow God? I was reading this this sentence, this passage to one of my sons in Revelation 21. It says, nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practice shame, practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So as I read that to my boy, he followed up with the, the natural follow-up question, which is, how do you get your name in the book of life? And the Bible is, is really clear. There's not, a, there's not a mystery surrounding this. It's just that you would receive the gift that Jesus offers, that you would say yes to his invitation. You see, Jesus went to the cross, and he died on the cross so that he could pay the price for all of your sin and for all of mine. And then three days later, he rose again from the grave, proving that he was God in the flesh and that he had taken care of the sin problem of the world. 
And so he invites us to have a relationship with him, a, a relationship of love that starts now and lasts for eternity. And, and what it requires of us is to simply say yes. Yes, we believe that Jesus is Lord. Yes, we believe that he's paid the price for our sins. We believe he's God. And, and so because we believe, we want to follow him. See, this is what Paul says, and he says it about as clearly as, as I think anyone can. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, friends, I invite you to experience his salvation today. I invite you to, to do just that, to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that that you want this relationship of love that starts today and lasts forever. Just receive his gift. The invitation is on the table. I, I think it's so amazing that all of the religions that the world has ever known are all about what humans can do to make ourselves right with God. And Christianity is the only religion, see, it's the only construct that's about what God has done to make things right between us and him. He's the one that's done the work. And so we just receive it. I encourage you to do that today. I want to close with a story. You know, as a pastor, I have the great privilege, the honor of walking with people as, as they prepare memorial services for those that they love. It's just an incredible honor and a trust, and I don't take it lightly. I heard a story about a pastor who was visited by by a lady, uh, an elderly member of his congregation. And this beautiful older woman came to him and she said, I want to talk to you about the arrangements for my funeral whenever that day comes. And he said, sure. And so he sat down with her and was taking notes. And mostly she wanted to talk about the songs that she would like to have played, the passage of scripture that she really wished would be read. She talked a little bit about her biography with him. And and so he just was processing all of that. And then she had an unusual request. She said, and the last thing, is I, I would love to be buried with a fork in my hand. And the pastor, he kind of did with some of you, oh, that's a bit of an interesting request. What, what's going on with the fork? And she said, well, pastor, one of my favorite experiences about being part of this church family is all of the potlucks that we would have together. She said, I love these potlucks. I love coming together, all the fellowship, all the laughter, you know, just, just the time spent together. It was just so good. She said, and after a while, spending time, having a meal together, inevitably the dishes would begin to get cleared away. But she said, my favorite thing is when the person clearing the dishes away would lean over and whisper to me, you'd better keep your fork. Because when they said that, I knew that dessert was coming. <laughs> and dessert is my favorite part of the meal. And she said, I want to be buried with a fork in my hand so that everybody who's there knows that the best is yet to come. See, I've had a great life with a lot of love, but I want you to know as good as this meal has been, the dessert is coming. So friends, I want to encourage you to say yes to the love of Jesus today, that you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you believe in your heart that he is God and that you would receive this invitation the invitation to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, I want all of us to grab hold of that fork because the best is yet to come. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray.
And Jesus, what we want to do is we want to say thank you that you are the one who has modeled this loving community to us. You are the one who has been gracious with us. You've been patient with us. You've been kind to us. You've been forgiving over us and over our sins. And, and you're the one who has, who has taken the initiative in all of this. And so Jesus, it's, it's with great joy in our hearts that we say yes. Yes, Jesus, we believe in you. Yes, we believe that you are the Lord. We believe that you paid the price on the cross for our sins, not yours, ours. We believe that you rose again from the grave, that you are God in the flesh. And we want to say yes to this invitation of love that you extend to us. We grab hold of it now by faith. We ask right now that you would write our names in your book of life, that you would let us live our life in relationship with you. We want to practice loving you now because we want to do it forever and ever. And we want to practice loving one another now because we know it's in loving one another we get a glimpse of heaven here on earth. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for hearing our prayer. Please walk with us as we seek to live out our faith in following you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Mm-hmm.